You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley and Darcy Fournier. Cindy K. Sproles is the author of What Mama Left Behind and the co-founder of Christian Devotions Ministries. A popular speaker, Cindy teaches at writers' conferences across the country and directs the Asheville Christian Writers' Conference in North Carolina. She is the executive editor of ChristianDevotions.us and freelance editor for Iron Stream Media. Cindy has a BA in business and journalism and lives in the mountains of East Tennessee with her family. Cindy Sproles, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Well, thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you and be talking about your latest release, This Is Where It Ends, set in East Tennessee. I was born and raised in Northeast Georgia, so I've, I kind of love East Tennessee as well. But let's get started with something fun. As a native of the Tennessee mountains, what would you say is your favorite comfort food? Oh, without a doubt, chicken and dumplings. Mm. Without a doubt. <laughs> okay. How do you, how do you like the dumplings? Like rolled dumplings or puffy dumplings? No, I like them. We, I roll them out flat, cut them and they're little strings, you know, little wide. Well, right. Half inch wide, yeah, they're good. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the way it's done. You cook it down all day, you know. Or- yeah, and I don't cook them. I'm, I don't cook them very often because I I eat them twenty four seven when I cook them. So <laughs> you know, cold out of the refrigerator for breakfast, lunch, dinner, that and ice cream. Now, so. <laughs> Oh, that sounds so good. I haven't had chicken and dumplings in forever, but oh, that's a good one, especially on a cold <laughs> evening. Yeah, we usually have the puffy kind up up here. You have like sort of a creamy, oh, thick type of soup on the bottom. And then like you put your dumplings on top, which are, they're really sort of a, when I make the, the dough for it, I really make it kind of like a drop biscuit, you know, that you don't have to roll out and then cook it. I think it's uncovered for 10 minutes and then covered for 10 minutes. I remember my mom put in the whole Dutch oven, like in our electric oven when I was a kid and making them that way. And my grandpa, Shimofani, he just loved her, her dumplings. <laughs> yeah, definitely comfort food. You can't make it too often. It's kind of like chocolate fudge at Christmas time. It is. Got to be is. careful. It's very addictive. <laughs> <laughs> when we make them here, it's it's uh, it's a sad day, really, <laughs> because you know the the dumplings go down and the scale goes up. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So, Cindy, in addition to writing historical fiction, you write nonfiction. Which came first? And do you find one more fun or more challenging? Well, for me, nonfiction came first. Um, My first conference that I went to when I was beginning my writing career, I I think I was one of those people that thought there's, you know, two easy things to write, excuse me, a devotion or a children's book, (laughs) both of which that was incorrect on both things, because those are probably two of the hardest things you have to write. But I I started with nonfiction. I wrote devotions. um, And then I met my ministry partner, Eddie Jones. And uh, a couple of years later, we started Christian Devotions Ministries. So uh, we've done a couple of books out of that. uh, Devotionals, we did He Said, She Said, uh, devotions uh, for seven years. 
so the the non nonfiction came first for me, um, and I still write nonfiction. I just uh, in February of this year, uh, Ironstream actually published a devotional that I that I did. Uh, that kind of takes us back to the roots of understanding what we believe and why we believe it. Uh, I fear greatly that our Christian worldview is falling away. And so I took scripture that that you learned as a child, the things that helped you make that decision to bring Christ into your life, uh, because I think we've forgotten a lot of those things. So I took those scriptures, took them just a little bit deeper. There's no I stories in that. Uh, it's all just taking things a little bit deeper and reminding you what your Christian worldview is. So for me, um, the nonfiction came first, but I love to write fiction. <laughs> you know, that's the challenge to write fiction. I've had to learn how to write fiction. Uh, and so when I was writing the nonfiction on the side, I was learning the craft of not of, of fiction. Interesting. And I love that. What's the name of this article? I'm, I actually love that you are addressing this issue. We don't realize how much our worldview affects us, but also how the things that we take in, like social media and just watching the news affects our worldview. When you are looking at the news, you know, for one to two hours a day, and you're hearing it from someone who has like a, a secular worldview, right. you know, that's going to affect you. So I actually love that you're addressing this. And I like the name of the article so I can read it when we're done recording. Well, actually, it's a devotional. It's a book. Okay. The book came out. It's a 90-day book. It's called Meet Me Where I Am, Lord. It came out in February of this year. Uh, so it's just a little small devotional, 90 days. And I broke it into 13 weeks uh, so that each week you're looking at a different aspect of your Christian worldview. And, you know, some of it is praise. Some of it is worship. Some of it is, you know, why you believe what you believe, who you are in Christ. You know, those those scriptures that you learned in the very beginning of your walk with Jesus. And those are the scriptures that dug into our heart and helped us make the decision that we wanted to invite Christ into our life. But that's also our Christian worldview. And and then until we we can't teach that, we can't really do anything to help others learn that Christian worldview until we remember and understand what our own Christian worldview is. So this is not a niche book. It is truly taking those scriptures down just a little bit deeper with a little little bit more education uh, underneath it, I have a, a good friend who is a professor of uh, preaching ministries at Johnson University, and he came behind me to read every single one and make sure that I I didn't misspeak anything. So I felt it was important when I wrote that book that I made sure that I had that I had that uh, oversight to make sure that everything I said and within that devotional was accurate. So. Um, so it's called Meet Me Where I Am, Lord. Uh, it came out in February. I'm really excited about it. And uh, so that was my fiction or my nonfiction in this new book that's coming out as fiction. So I've got two coming out this year. You are a busy lady and I'm, I don't want to spend too much time on your, uh, meet me where I am, even though as a teacher, I'm super excited about it. I've been looking for something like this, especially as you look at, since you're saying that you look at the, the verses that were taught as children and I'm, I'm needing to incorporate those type of verses into my, my lesson planning. And so we're going to be sure that we're focused on this is where it ends, but I'm, I already, I actually just purchased meet me where I am Lord. And I hope our, our listeners will as well. 
Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) Since you mentioned, you know, these scriptures that kind of draw us to the Lord, can you tell us a little bit about your personal experience coming to know the Lord? (laughs) This is sad to say, but I honestly don't remember. Uh, And and I don't know why I don't remember. The only thing I can tell you is that my, um, I've always, I've been raised in a church. uh, So I've never not known Jesus in my life. Uh, but my brother was 12 years older than me. And I, I, so basically both of us grew up, you know, as only children. <laughs> but I, I found that my best friend uh, was always with me. The person that I always talked to, the person that I always um, conversed with and thought of was Jesus. You know, even as a child, I can remember that. And um, I, I was baptized when I was in third grade, you know, so I actually took him into my heart when I was in third grade. But then I think it wasn't until I was about maybe 28 years old. I had married a minister who was an alcoholic minister and uh, we were ended up going through a divorce. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, just waking up in the morning and saying, you know, God, I'm not asking you to fix this. I'm just asking you to help me open the blinds so I can see that you're there. And every day I open the blinds. And so I I think at that point, I realized my God never leaves my side. Uh, No matter how bad things are, uh, he never leaves my side. And I think that is when, even though I brought him into my heart when I was a child, um, like I said, I was raised in the church, so I never I never don't remember, you know, having Jesus in my life, but I think making him an actual functioning part of my life didn't happen until my, my late twenties. Uh, you know, when I went through that divorce and, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, came to the realization of who God really is. Yeah. I think it is so important to share those testimonies. Thank you so much. Um, because, yeah, I was like that. I grew up in the church. I gave my heart to the Lord when I was six. And there was, you know, it's like I never knew what it was like to not know him, at least to some extent, and to be, you know, trying to follow him. Um, and then, you know, there was in my teens, it was there was a time when it was like for me, I I had to choose again. It's like I chose when I was a child. It's not that it doesn't count, but you get older and you learn more. And so you get an opportunity to choose again. Am I really going to follow him? Is he, like you say, is he really going to be, you know, an integral part of my life? Um, So, yeah, I think, I think that's so important. And, and I love it that God takes us when we're kids, you know, it's like, do we get it? No, we don't get it, but he'll take us anyway. And he's, he's very faithful to teach us. So thank you for sharing that. That's, that's really encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. I I just, like I said, I don't remember ever not having him as a part of my life. And, and I've been through some ups and downs. I mean, who hasn't been through some rough, you know, rough goes of it. But I, I also can say that I, I've never been one who has ever been angry at God when bad things happened. Um, for me, it's always been the, the opposite that rather than growing angry with him, I've, I've more retreated deeper to him. Um, and I, I kind of like to think that that's because of that upbringing. Yeah, because he was always your safe space. Right, you know, always there. Up. 
That's wonderful. And it kind of leads into our next question, which is, is there anything especially interesting you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God's laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Well, I suppose when we talk just a little bit about that Christian worldview, that is the thing I think that God has laid on my heart especially lately. And in fact, I'm teaching classes uh, at conferences this year where that um, one of the classes I'm teaching is uh, intergate, uh, you know, bringing writing Christian worldview into uh, the general market. Uh, and so that has been one of the things that I've really done a lot of studying on the last couple of three years is how do we, as authors, how's, uh, as we Christian authors, how do we, you know, pin those stories that um, they're not in your face Christianity <laughs> uh, because we, we tend to forget that um, the bulk of the world doesn't know God anymore. Um, you know, the, we're, we're the minority now. So when we write our stories, we can't, we can't always assume that the reader in the general market is going to know what we're talking about. Uh, you know, so you remember those scriptures that we had to take um, <clears throat> that told us that, uh, you know, there comes a point where you leave the milk and you go to the meat. And we're kind of in that place in our nation right now. where We got to go back to the milk uh, and, you know, reteach that kind of stuff. So in this class that I've been teaching it, what God has laid on my heart to do is, you know, how do we write that into that Christian worldview into our stories without making it so overt and in your face, you know, that people get it. Exactly. Making it authentic and, you know, just part of life, because that's, that's what your worldview is, is part of life. It doesn't have to be in your face, but how to write that is, is quite another thing. So that's, that's awesome that, that that's where God has you right now, studying that and teaching that. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a journey to learn. Well, let's dive in now to talking about your latest release, your novel, This Is Where It Ends. And from the back cover copy, how long is a body expected to keep a secret? At only 14 years old, Minerva Jane Jenkins moves to the mountains with her new husband. Among their few possessions is a small box that he claims holds gold. On his deathbed, he makes her promise to keep his secret, telling no one of the box or its supposed treasure. 30 years later, Minerva has kept that secret, even as she nears the end of her own life. Rumors still find a way to spread, however, and Minerva finds herself the subject of interest for Del Rankin, a reporter with a desire for the truth. By his side is a friend who wants to know where the gold is hidden. Neither of them can even begin to guess the challenges they will face by trying to get what they want from Minerva. Despite her dedication to keeping her late husband's secret, Minerva finds herself thinking about sharing what she knows with Del. Can she truly bring herself to break such a long-held promise? Even if she does, the truth of what's really in the box may be hidden even from her. I am super intrigued by this theme of secrets surrounding this box. And the Appalachian Mountains seem like the perfect place to hide a handful of secrets. Not to mention, you have a slightly unlikely hero in an elderly lady. So... <laughs> what was your inspiration for Minerva? <laughs> well, for 20 years, I just retired in 2020 from a company called Comfort Keepers. And that's what I've done for the last 20 years as an office manager. And what we did was place caregivers in the home of the elderly. So the inspiration of the story kind of came from, you know, 
a number of those uh, elderly people that we worked that we worked with and learned to love and made a part of our family and took care of. And some of them even, you know, walked them through the pearly gates, <laughs> you know, but um, that's where the inspiration from this came from. Um, I, I just grew to really love and appreciate our elderly. Uh, and I think it, so many of us now, we don't pay a lot of attention to our elderly. Um, you know, if we can stuff them away somewhere and not think too much about them, <laughs> we're missing so much. Uh, we're missing their humor. And my goodness, we're missing all of the uh, history that they know. <clears throat> you know, my, my own mother will be 97 this year. Uh, and no, this story is not based on my mother. <laughs> But um, but she will be 97 this year. And to look back and sit down and talk to my own mom uh, about when she was a child and the things that they did as kids uh, and how life was when she was growing up in the mountains. Uh, it's a wealth of information and wisdom, you know. So that's where that's where the um, inspiration for this came from. I love that. I remember talking with my grandparents and they've actually, my mom's parents, they grew up in the North Georgia mountains and there is so much I learned from them. They've, they've both passed away, but I hold on to those memories. We have one man uh, that was just such a hoot to be with. I got to to help sit with him one day when it snowed and our caregiver couldn't get to him. He was 102 on the day that I stayed with him. He turned 102. And just to tell you that this is the fun thing, some of the fun of them, um, you know, I, I saw his birthday cards and I, I said, are you 102 today? And he said, yes, I am. And I said, well, gee, in all of your years, 102 years, you've seen the entire, you know, industrial age happen. You've seen everything. You know, what do you think is the most important invention that you've seen through all these years? And he kind of rubbed his chin a little bit and he grinned and he said, well, without a doubt, toilet paper, <laughs> <laughs> which just made me laugh and laugh and laugh. But, you know, there's just such fun in our elderly and I wish more people would do it. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, you have written several novels set in Southern Appalachia. So what draws you to these mountains when you're writing historical fiction? Well, it, it is where I'm born and raised, so it is what I know. My mother was one of seven, and so we grew up, uh, you know, we grew up in a time when we all still made apple butter. We still planted gardens together, my mom and all of her brothers and sisters. And and then when it came time to pick green beans and shut corn and cream corn and make apple butter, it was something we did every week, uh, you know, as, fam as a family, uh, as a group of our family, my mom's brothers and sisters. And uh, so it, that is the thing that draws me to it is what I know. Uh, and also too, it's it, the history and the culture of the Appalachian mountains is not really taught in school anymore. Our nation and our kids are, are tending to lose that, um, the importance of what the people of the Appalachian mountains had a part in when it came to the development of this country. So, you know, I kind of like to be able to remind people about that. I don't want them to forget, you know, it's, it's not an easy life back then in the 1800s. It certainly was not an easy life, but, um, you know, they were very innovative people. Yes. 
Yeah. And the back cover of your book doesn't tell us a lot about Dell, except that he's determined to discover the truth about Minerva's husband's mysterious box. So can you tell us a little bit about Dell and his work and how he gets involved with Minerva? Well, Dale is a reporter who comes from Lexington. Uh, the story takes place in Barberville, Kentucky, which Barberville is a real town in Kentucky, though Shaw Mountain is not. It's That is uh, something I completely made up. He is a reporter from Lexington uh, who uh, his friend kind of gets word about this box of gold and uh, that it's hidden away on the mountain. And so they go in search of the treasure. Uh, and he is more interested in the people. He's interested in the story because that is what he does. He is a, he's a reporter. Uh, but the side of that is uh, he's looking for his family. And so uh, there are ties there between him and his family and, uh, and Miss Minerva. And he's uh, trying to figure that out. So together, you know, they come along. She doesn't, she doesn't trust him very easily. Uh, and so uh, he he continues to remind her, I don't I'm not interested in the gold. I'm interested in the gold that is in you, the story of you. Uh, and so that's how he works in. Sounds like a great character. I'm looking forward to reading this because, you know, reporters, he'll know how to ask good questions to bring out some cool, cool stuff. Well, <laughs> what are you working on next? I'm working on a story right now that the working title of it is called The Eyes of River. Uh, and it's about the mineral springs that are around our area. Um, back in the 1800s, they called them granny women, but it's actually the, you know, the midwives or the women who were the kind of the doctors up in the mountains. And they used those mineral springs uh, for, to help with healing. Um, and they were very protective of them. Uh, they didn't, their, their big thing was, cause you know, religion, uh, even though sometimes it was somewhat con uh, convoluted in the mountains, um, it was definitely a very big part of, you know, the mountain culture. Uh, and so they protected these, uh, mineral springs because they didn't want people, you know, just going out and selling them and saying, oh, this is, you know, this will heal you. They always said the, the water only helps with the healing. God does the healing. Uh, you know, so um, this story that I'm working on now is it deals with those uh, mineral springs that you find around this area, those nice hot mineral springs that bubble up every here and there. Well, that's cool. I honestly didn't know that there were mineral springs in the, the coal mountains of the Appalachians. So that's that's a cool little niche to focus on. I bet that'll be fun. <laughs> they are, Yes. And for our listeners, Cindy is offering a copy of This Is Where It Ends. To enter to win, just check out our giveaways page at historicalbookworm.com. You can also find the direct link to that giveaway in the show notes for this episode. And Cindy, where can our listeners learn more about you? Um, they can visit me on my website, uh, which is www.cindysproles, it's S-P-R-O-L-E-S.com. And you can get in touch with me through that, see my books and uh, learn a little bit about me. Sounds great. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed talking with you. 
Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.